Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's guest is Christopher Cox, author of the book, The Deadline Effect, How to Work Like It's the Last Minute Before the Last Minute. There is something about deadlines. They can motivate us. They can inspire us to do great work. They can create urgency. Would we ever complete any significant project without a deadline? Christopher talks about various organizations and how they use deadlines, and we discuss techniques and strategies we can employ to increase our own productivity and perhaps even achieve a state of flow using deadlines. So if you want to eliminate procrastination, get more done and feel better doing it, you won't want to miss this one. My friends, I bring you Christopher Cox. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Christopher Cox, welcome to The Good Life. Hi, Sean. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. And the topic of today's discussion is your book, The Deadline Effect, How to Work Like It's the Last Minute Before the Last Minute. The book delves into the mysterious power of the deadline, and it has the power to motivate us, but they also have a lot of challenges associated with them, and we're going to get into that. And you went out into the world and observed organizations that have learned how to take the urgency of a deadline and jettison all the -the down-to-the-wire nonsense. And my hope today is that we can distill some lessons from what you learn and what's in the book that will help us as busy individuals trying to get work done each day, be more productive and and improve the quality of our work and the timing of our work. So let's get into it. How did you end up writing a book about deadlines? Well, it started really with the job I've had for the past 15 plus years, which is working in the magazine business. I've been editor at GQ magazine. I was editor at Harper's magazine. And the sort of day-to-day business of being an editor involves a lot of deadlines. It involves getting writers to send you articles on time. It involves preparing those articles for publication. And one of the things that struck me early on was how it doesn't matter if it's GQ, which is part of a giant corporation or Harper's Magazine, which is an independent publication. As organizations, they were incredibly effective at meeting deadlines. The individuals in each place could be completely different, but month after month in both cases gq and harper's you, they never missed an issue harper's has not missed an issue since 1850. that had me intrigued you know it's like why what are the systems in place there that make sure that that happens month after month or you know weekly magazines week after week after week and so from that narrow focus like i quickly expanded and started, started to look at other industries other organizations and that became the book as i sort of reported on different places that had mastered deadlines one by one. You know, that is pretty amazing. You think about Harper's and you think about some of these magazines with the as long of a run as they've had, uninterrupted, getting those editions out. And it's all the more amazing when you think about the fact that you're dealing with writers who are notoriously bad at living up to a deadline. And you Absolutely. even talk about a couple that you worked with that were a big challenge and One of the things that you used, and we all do this, and you talk about it early in the book, is the false deadline. So can you talk a little bit about that, what you learned about the false deadline, kind of that the deadline before the deadline that we try to trick ourselves into thinking is the deadline? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, some writers didn't need that much help and they certainly didn't need trickery, but plenty of them were chronically late. And for one of the worst cases, a writer who I in the book, I think I described as pathologically tardy, I had to sort of pull out all the stops. And first thing I did with him was set a deadline that was incredibly short. And the whole goal of that was to just eliminate any moments of procrastination and worry. Like he couldn't worry about writing the, the assignment. He just had to get down and start writing it. And for someone like him, that was useful. I mean, he got him working right away. And then, yeah, like, as you said, I gave him that deadline was not the actual, oh, I, I have to send it to the printer that day deadline. I, I built in plenty of space for myself and for him to revise. So he was helped by that. But of course, not everyone has an editor there to sort of set these deadlines for you and, and hold you to them. And in reporting the book, one of the interesting things I discovered is that those same sort of strategies can be self-imposed and still be effective. You just have to actually go through the effort of setting these deadlines for yourself and especially setting concrete deadlines that you keep foremost in your mind, you know, something to concentrate your energies around. Let's talk a little bit about the word deadline. You introduce it early on and it has this kind of foreboding feeling to it. I mean, it has the word dead in it. It feels like, gosh, if I don't reach this, if I don't meet this timeline, this the project's going to be dead or you know, something bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it comes from the the editing world, which is kind of interesting. Can you talk about that? Yeah, no, it's it's a very somber sounding word, which is funny because you know in the book I basically make the argument that we should embrace deadlines and they can be liberating and they can make us more creative and more productive. But yet it has a gruesome past. They think the origin of the word came from the Civil War, when prisoners uh, kept uh, in the stockade were. There's a deadline, a line literally around the prison. And if the prisoner went over the line, they'd be shot dead on sight. So that was the original deadline. And then it got adopted into journalism and publishing. And again, was still a physical space. It was the line outside of which if you tried to print anything on a newspaper, the words wouldn't show up. So any copy that went beyond that line would be sort of dead on arrival. It was from there that it came to be associated with time management and you know when that story would be sent to the editor rather than the actual printing process. And it was a great conceptual success once journalists started using it to mean, you know, the time something was due. And of course, now it's adopted into the wider world. In the book, one of the themes is we should embrace deadlines, that they're a positive force, that if we learn how to harness them, we can become more productive and not just more productive, but actually reduce anxiety in some ways, reduce some of the stress. So let's get into that. Why do you say that? Because the initial reaction to many of us, the deadline is it's just, it creates stress. It creates anxiety. We often put things off until the last minute and then we scramble to do whatever it is we need to do. So how do we flip that around? Yeah. I mean, I think that people mistake, they mistakenly associate deadlines with anxiety. And what they're really remembering is the unpleasant feeling of procrastination, the unpleasant feeling of of not being productive. The actual last minute work that you do before something is due, those tend to be positive experiences in that moment. I mean, you're, when you're working hard, when you're really like firing at all cylinders, those are happy moments for you. The only problem is if you're not effective at manipulating deadlines and, and setting up time management skills for yourself, you're not going to give yourself enough time to do things well. You're going to maybe run up past your deadline. So the book is sort of about 
okay, let's take that creative energy that you do get from the time pressure of a deadline and just distribute it a little bit more rationally so that you're not in this state of panic. So you talk about manipulating the deadline and, and creating systems. And I think that's really powerful. And there's a research in the book that you cite from Dan Arley, the professor at MIT, who's done a lot of work in behavioral economics. And he did a very fascinating experiment with his class around term papers that I think was quite illuminating when it comes to how systems can help us. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, it's an interesting experiment and it sort of teaches two lessons at once. So what he did was he had a class where there were three term papers due during the semester, and he divided his students into three groups. For one, all of the papers, he allowed them to choose their own deadline so they could space them out evenly, or they could have them all be due on the last day. For the second group, there was no deadline. So de facto, the deadline was the last day of class. And for the third, he imposed mandatory deadlines that were evenly spaced. And you probably won't be surprised to learn that the students who were given mandatory evenly spaced deadlines did the best. Those with no deadline who where everything was due at the, at the last day of class did the worst. So that's an interesting lesson to take home. Like you know, if you give yourself interim deadlines, if you space out your deadlines, then you're going to perform better. But the other lesson is that for students who could choose their own deadline, so they could choose to turn everything on the last day of class, or they could choose to self-impose evenly spaced deadlines, they did as well as the ones with mandatory deadlines. As long as they did the same thing that the mandatory deadline did, as long as they spaced them evenly, set interim deadlines for themselves for their, for their classwork, they performed just as well as, as the one with the mandatory deadlines. But the people that waited to the last minute didn't do as well. And I think also you mentioned that the quality of the term papers was higher with the students that had the interim deadlines that's evenly spaced things out. Yeah, absolutely. They have the highest grades. Yeah. You know, I would think that's due to the fact that they're putting in effort in a reasonably spaced amount of time. So they're putting in the, the right amount of effort for the first paper, the right amount of effort for the second paper. When you wait to the end, it's kind of cram time and you're trying to do three papers in one week. And, you know, we've all been there and, and the quality is going to suffer. And Dan does a lot of work on rationality. And he's he points out that the rational approach is just to put the deadline at the end and give yourself as much flexibility as possible. But that doesn't work out so well. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, if, if humans didn't have the psychological biases that we had, in theory, the rational approach is to do everything the last day because three papers, that would give you the maximum amount of time and the maximum flexibility to work on each one. But that's just not the way that we actually work when it comes down to it. We procrastinate, we delay things, we, you know, we don't function like robots when it comes to writing papers, we function like human beings. And so that's why you need to impose these sort of external prompts and nudges to, to get things done in a more orderly way. Yeah. So we need these systems, these processes, the fact that an interim deadline is in place helps us. And you saw this in the real world. Do you want to, do you want to talk about maybe an example of where you saw interim deadlines working in organizations that led to, say, more positive embracing of deadlines? Yeah, actually, it was a great case study that I did by reporting on Jean-Georges von Gerichten, who is a famous chef. He's got Michelin stars and 40 restaurants all around the world. 
And I spent a few weeks with him as he was opening two restaurants simultaneously, literally one open on Tuesday and the next open on Wednesday, both in New York City. And for one of the restaurants, he set up this very rigorous system of interim deadlines. And for the second one, he wasn't able to do that. I, he wanted to, but was not able to do so. And so for the first restaurant, the, which is called the Fulton, the way he set up interim deadlines was before opening day, he set up mock services. So these are, you know, basically full meal service. They try to make it as similar to a real meal service with paying customers as possible, but they serve the staff, they serve people who work for his company, they serve people who eventually who work for the developer of the, of the building that the restaurant is in, basically trying to mimic the restaurant fully functioning as early as possible and as often as possible. And so by doing that, and they started two months out, every night they would do a mock service. Each of those served as an interim deadline to sort of check their progress to see what was working, what wasn't working. The Fulton, by the time that restaurant opened, it was operating at full steam and the opening went absolutely flawlessly. The other restaurant, which is called the Paris Cafe, they couldn't get into the physical space. They couldn't, it was, it was a development in, at JFK Airport and they were not allowed to use the kitchen until basically the day before it opened. And, you know, in theory, that might not be a problem. You know, he's an accomplished chef. You can sort of just sort of use all your knowledge and throw it at the opening and, and you'll get there without having to set up interim deadlines. But that opening did not go nearly as smoothly because they just didn't have that sort of that practice, that muscle memory provided by those interim deadlines of the mock service. Yeah. What was the impact of, of the Paris Cafe? Did you check in on it a week or two later? Did it, how did that go you know, beyond just the opening day? Did it have an impact uh, on either restaurant down the road? I know COVID came along shortly after you did the reporting, <laughs> maybe six months or a year, but... Um, did it have a lasting effect or was it just ma- mainly just the first couple of weeks of working out the details and ironing through all the problems? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it didn't, it, if you go to the Paris cafe now, it, it's a well-functioning restaurant. The food tastes good. It's, you know, it's everything it needs to be. But unfortunately there were weeks, if not months of bumps along the road in which you're dealing with real paying customers. So the, you know, that's a whole group of people that you've somewhat disappointed Maybe that changes the way they feel about going to a different restaurant owned by the, that same restaurant group. Maybe they're just disappointed by that one day, and then you know, that matters too. So certainly, Jean-Georges, I know he's such a perfectionist, prefers the first method where he gets everything exactly right before the doors open. So one of the biases in effect here that we're dealing with, one of the human judgment fallacies is the planning fallacy. Yes, the planning Mm -hmm. fallacy, which was first written about by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And it's basically that we are overly optimistic when it comes to planning. That's just, it seems to be our default method in human judgment. When we look at a project, we tend to be optimistic. We look at the most optimistic timeline and if things will go well, and we tend to sort of move in that direction. That was in effect here as well, because that that TWA, former TWA terminal where the Paris Cafe opened, which I think became a hotel lobby, was supposed to be done in a certain amount of time. And of course, the planning fallacy reared its ugly head and it ended up getting pushed out and pushed out. It seems like the interim 
deadline helps us with the planning fallacy in some way to be more realistic and to recalibrate as we go. Yeah, I mean, so as you say, the TWA hotel, which is where that Paris Cafe was, went way past its deadline. And I think that it's a problem that afflicts the construction business more than any other. And the reason that they are subject to the planning fallacy and unable to vanquish it, basically, is that one, it's expected now. Like people sort of know it's famous that the construction business like always runs over budget and over time. Even if you're hiring a contractor for your house, that's sort of like built into the process. I think if they decided to start pushing back against that aggressively, they could actually reverse some of that. In researching the planning fallacy and, and some of Kahneman's work on why it happens and how to avoid it, well, the, the example that he gave, which I found kind of hilarious, was he himself was a victim of the planning fallacy. He was writing a textbook with a group of other professors. And before they started, they sort of tried to estimate how long it would take to write this textbook. These are all you know, psychologists and economists, people who should know better, but they guessed their guess was seven years off. So they, they, they sort of, as a group, guessed it was going to take two years and it actually took nine years. And there was even one of the academics that was writing this, this textbook had done a very similar project before and that had taken nine years. But when it came time to ask him how long it was going to take, he guessed two years like everybody else. So you see how, how powerful this optimism bias is and therefore you know, how frequently the planning fallacy rears its head. There are solutions to it. That academic could have done this and, and you can do this in your own life. And it's very simple. Basically, it's to think of the last project that you did very deliberately that was similar to the one you're doing next. And then say, well, how long did that take? And just be honest about that. And then use that to plan how long you are going to, how much time you're going to budget for this, this project. There was an experiment run by a different academic who basically asked his students writing their honors theses, I'm going to force you to be pessimistic. So I want you to think of what is the worst case scenario for when you're going to finish your honors thesis? You know, not when you think you'll do it, not what's going to happen if everything goes exactly right. When will you turn it in if it's the worst case scenario? And even when prompted that way, even when told don't be optimistic, they were still too optimistic. Only half the students had submitted their honors thesis by the worst case scenario date. He continued the experiment after that, and it's like, okay, fine. Telling people to be pessimistic doesn't work. What did work was what I said before is don't be pessimistic. Just think about what happened in the past. Think about a similar situation in the past and use that to estimate when you're going to finish this project. And when they did that, they got it exactly right. They predicted to a high degree of accuracy when they were going to finish the project. That's a great trick. And I, I think the conversation in my head when I think about that goes something like, well, yes, this project took two years in the past. But this time, since it's a similar project, I think I've learned a lot about how to do projects like this. So this one's going to take one year. And yeah. I think what I need to do, and maybe what we all need to do, is to eliminate that second part of the sentence, that, the part that says, I learned so much last time, I'm better at it, I'm becoming more proficient, I'm going to be more efficient. And that doesn't really seem to be the case. Yeah, no, that that's your optimism, you know, messing with you. Or you also could say like, oh, but last time I was moving, you know, house or last time. But I had course, young kids in the house or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'll come up with excuses for why last time went badly. But the truth is like, there's going to be something else that's going to happen this time that's similar and will we'll slow you down. So really the best predictor is just what happened last time. So the construction industry 
sort of gets to set its own deadline in some respects. I'm sure they're subject to different constraints and things like that. Uh, but you went out and looked at organizations that have deadlines imposed on them. One is a lily farm that grows bulbs for Easter lilies. And of course, Easter shows up every year in the spring, sometimes on a different, well, it's different every year, depending on, actually, I'm not sure how it's how it's set exactly based on different religious texts, but... It's based on the lunar <laughs> calendar. Yeah. So it, is? It, okay. it can, it can, it can be any one of 35 days each year. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you went to an organization that has to work with a kind of a moving deadline, but it happens every year. And you went to another organization, the Telluride Ski Resort, that is working with a fixed deadline, kind of Thanksgiving, but working with Mother Nature, which has all kinds of variables. And they couldn't predict how much snow and what the weather was going to be like as they got closer to opening day. So can you maybe talk about a couple of those examples of when we're working with deadlines that are sort of imposed on us? Yeah, sure. Um, starting with the Easter lilies, Yes, exactly. Like they're growing a crop. There's four family farms and they're pretty small operations, but they actually provide all the Easter lilies that are sold throughout the United States and Canada each year. But it's a very strange crop because it's, it's really only grown for one day or one weekend of the year. And people don't really buy them before Easter and they definitely don't buy them after Easter. One of the farmers told me basically the day after Easter, the Easter lily is worthless. So they have to meet their deadline. And one of the ways that they've found to do that is by basically what I call in the book, working right to left. So rather than, you know, I'm a farmer, I'm going to plant this bulb. It's going to take however long it takes for it to grow. And I'm going to make sure it grows well. And I'm going to harvest it. And then I'm going to put it in a greenhouse to flower. They can't do that. Right. So they have to start right on the right side of the calendar at Easter and work backwards and use that to like plan down to the day, every part of their schedule. So because these are family farms, they have the depth of experience to know exactly how long it takes for the flower to flower in the greenhouse. And before that, how long they have to let the bulbs rest. And before that, how long they have to let the bulbs grow. And that helps them set everything, uh, all these benchmarks along the way, like when to harvest it, when to plant it, all that kind of stuff. And that's another way of overcoming the planning fallacy. Like they really are sort of using past experience to set a schedule and then building that schedule right to left just to make sure they hit that one day, that Easter day. For Telluride, exactly as you say, like basically one approach to running Telluride, uh, which is not the one they do, would just to be sort of wait until the snow fell, until there's enough snow to, to get people to start skiing and then say like, okay, well, it snowed a lot. Now we can open and come on people. But that is not a way to run a business. They need to have a more regularity in their revenue. And then most importantly, they need to meet the biggest skiing holiday of the year, which is the week between Christmas and New Year's. One of the smartest things they do in order to meet that deadline is to set an earlier deadline that they are open every year. So fine, the, the real, real deadline, the deadline they can't miss is Christmas, but the deadline they set for themselves to open and they open every year on is Thanksgiving. And to do that, they make snow, but they also like hire people and get them up to speed and ready to go in the weeks before Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is not a fake deadline. It's real too, in a way, because there'll be people skiing there. There'll be people who booked their hotel. There's a paying audience that is going to demand that the mountain is open and, and working well at that point. But if they're still doing a little bit of work, if they're still making more snow, if there's still more of the mountain to open up on that date, the stakes aren't quite as high 
as if it was Christmas week when, you know, there's going to be many thousands of more people there with high expectations. In the book, I call that a soft deadline with teeth. So it's a soft deadline in that it's not the highest stakes for Telluride, but it has teeth because there are people there who are going to get mad if things aren't are actually open. It's interesting. You've done some great reporting around these stories. In fact, I just want to put in a little plug for the book, and that's really interesting. You put the reader into these different organizations, and you get the reader feeling the emotion and the energy picking up as we move towards some deadline, some big event. And you describe how leaders and middle managers, what they're doing to kind of keep the organization moving in that direction. And what a deadline does for these organizations, it creates urgency. It helps align activity and mobilize people and organize action towards a goal. And that's some of the really interesting insights in the book as I read this is around leadership and managing people and using a deadline. You even talk about how sometimes the body language and some of the words and the language that people and leaders use around deadlines, how it helps the organization move towards the outcome it wants to achieve. And I thought that both of those examples were really good as, as far as that. Yeah, no, I tell you right, especially the CEO of that, of that resort, uh, Bill Jensen, is just very thoughtful about time management and leadership and how to motivate his staff to sort of all work together to meet that Thanksgiving deadline that he had set. I could envision a different scenario in which everyone on the mountain kind of knows that Thanksgiving is a deadline, but they also know it's, it's not really the most important deadline and they could sort of let things slip and not be ready. But that's not the attitude there at all. It's very much like, People are going to be out there on Thanksgiving. We need to give them the best experience possible. Yeah, it's sort of like to go back to Harper's Magazine, the edition will go out this month. Some leader somewhere, some group of leaders is committed to that outcome. And everything works from that point towards achieving that outcome. And the deadline is part of it. How we talk about it, our body language, the leadership skills we use to you know motivate people, help others understand the purpose of what we're doing, and yeah, it, it's completely different approach when you've got Thanksgiving as this deadline that people feel urgency for, as opposed to a laissez-faire. Oh, we'll open when we can. Hopefully, we'll get there before Christmas because that's kind of an important week, and <laughs> yeah. uh, those resorts probably aren't around anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And there are some that did operate that way. Some smaller places still operate that way. you know. But when you're dealing with a multi-million dollar operation like Telluride, you can't. So it's good that they have these systems in place. So another example that you embedded yourself into an organization is the military, and it, it's a humanitarian relief organization. I, I found this one to be really fascinating because the deadline is random. It's stochastic, mm-hmm. as you talk about in the book. It, they have to be ready for something, but they don't know what it is exactly. Uh, they know it's coming up. And so they approach deadlines in a different way. Yeah. So the unit that I embedded with for that chapter was called the 621st Contingency Response Wing of the Air Force. It's a mouthful, but it, it's basically just a unit of the Air Force that responds to disasters. That's their main job. And so they stand on alert in McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. And if an earthquake hits somewhere in the world, if a hurricane hits somewhere in the world and they need the help of the US military to start humanitarian aid flowing in, they call on these people. And what they're especially good at is 
going anywhere, no matter how much of the infrastructure has been destroyed and setting up an airfield so they can set up a place for, you know, cargo planes to start landing and bringing in relief supplies. But as you said, they don't know when the next disaster is going to strike. If it's an earthquake, they really don't know. And if it's a hurricane, there's only a short amount of warning. I looked at how does that operation work? How are they ready to sort of deploy anywhere in the world uh, within 12 hours, which is their deployment window? Uh, They try to hit 12 hours every time they are called up to respond to a disaster. In a way, they kind of use every trick in the book, like every trick in my book, but every trick in the you know time management book to get that done. And the thing that I saw when I was there, so I was there on at the Air Force Base with these airmen right before Hurricane Florence hit in North Carolina, and they were, were fully expecting to, to be deployed. And there was widespread flooding in North Carolina and eventually was declared a disaster. So they thought they were going out the door within hours. But everyone that I met on base was totally relaxed. When I saw that, it opened my eyes a little bit. I was like, ah, if you master preparedness and time management, it can change your life. I mean, you, you can rid yourself of this anxiety of procrastination, of not getting things done, of not being productive. That ended up being the last chapter of the book because they were just truly like the masters of sticking to a deadline. Yeah, well, that really jumped out at me because this unit, these individuals were fully prepared at all times. So they'd done all the work they and they were constantly training to make sure that they were on top of things and doing maintenance on their equipment and things like that. But the fact that they put in all that work allowed them to, as you said, relax and be in the moment. You even mentioned Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, I think if I got his name right there, the psychologist who wrote the book on flow and just that state that we get into when we are, you know, skiing or riding or doing something that just allows us to kind of forget about the day to day and just be in the moment. It's a wonderful feeling. And you got the sense that these individuals were as a team kind of operating at that level. And then you made the connection to if we can master timelines or deadlines and productivity, we could live in that state kind of perpetually and it's kind of the holy grail. And I think that was really fascinating. Yeah, no, like achieving a state of flow is state of happiness, right? Like we all want to be there. Even people who are bad at managing deadlines, when they're sort of in the thick of things and, and, and working on a project, they achieve brief moments of it. The quest of the book and what I want for myself and, and what I think a lot of people want is how to maintain that longer, more consistently. These airmen had done it by imposing all these systems of preparedness. But if in your own life and you're working on your own projects, if you are a master manipulator of deadlines, if you're setting like interim deadlines along the way, you know, soft deadlines with teeth, all these strategies that you have to sort of maintain high levels of productivity and creativity, you can achieve something like what those airmen did. You know, it does, you don't have to wait for an earthquake to strike or have an earthquake uh, determine your, your, your work life. It's just treat your own work life in that same manner. Like I'm going to be constantly productive, constantly prepared. You know, that might sound like a grind because, oh, I'm working constantly. But actually, if you're working constantly, but productive, that's a happy state. You know, that, that's all you've done is it, that's your same life, but minus all of the anxiety of procrastination, all the anxiety of inaction. So after doing all of this research, you had a book proposal in hand to write this book and you're getting ready to write it. What did you apply? What did you take from 
these organizations and apply to your own life and this project of writing a book to get this book out the door. It was released. What was the what release date of your book? The book came out July 6th of this year. Yeah. So you met the deadline. The book's out. Somehow it got out the door. So what, yeah, talk, talk a little yeah. bit about what you applied and how you, how that played out. Well, it was funny. I signed the contract and the contract has a due date in it. And I was talking to my editor at the publisher and he was a little less, less fair about it. He said, ah, oh, you know, like that, that's the date in the contract, but you know, almost no writer meets their deadline. If you go beyond it, I'm not even going to notice. I said, no, 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 you can't say that to me. Like, I know enough about deadlines already that I that you and I both have to treat this date very seriously. And there's also the added embarrassment if I was late on my deadline in a book about deadlines. So I took it very seriously from the beginning. And the other thing that I did quite deliberately was, you know, what I did to that writer we talked about at the beginning. I set myself the shortest deadline that I that I thought I could actually pull off. So I, I set a deadline that was sort of just a little bit uncomfortable. It was 13 months. I said, I gave myself 13 months to uh, to report and write the book and get it all polished up and ready to send it to the editor. And then, yeah, at the end of the day, I, I met the deadline. I sent it to him. And by the time I got to the end of the process, I'd done, of course, all the reporting. So I, I did other things along the way. Like I set myself interim deadlines for chapters. And uh, I gave myself a soft deadline with teeth where, where I gave the whole manuscript to my wife and to my agent a few weeks before I gave it to my editor. So I, I, I really did try to like use what I'd learned along the way. And from where I'm sitting, it was effective. So you hit that date that your publisher said is not that big of a deal if you missed it. You actually hit that one? I did. I did. Uh, and I think, you know, he was happy, even though he wasn't used to that happening. He, he was glad that you know he had it in hand early and on time. So what advice would you give a professional, someone out there that is doing knowledge work, trying to get things done? I don't know if they're analyzing reports in Excel or writing or moving a team towards uh, a software development team to try to get something out the door. What advice would you give around deadlines and trying to achieve that state of flow as opposed to that last minute um, uneasiness, anxiety, and stress to try to do something and cram it in the last minute? Well, the first step is to actually set deadlines. So that sounds obvious, but too often, I think we get into this trap of thinking like, this project is a big deal and it's super urgent. So my deadline is going to be as soon as possible. And I think that's as soon as possible is the worst deadline you can set. You need to set a concrete deadline that is actually a date and even a time. If you do that, you know that will start focusing your energy in a way that this sort of open-ended, like I'm just going to work as hard on this as possible, does. So set the deadline. If you want, set it uncomfortably close. That will be motivating. And then start working on some of these other strategies. You know, if there are benchmarks along the way, checkpoints, set those. Like you know, set interim deadlines. You can build on a soft deadline with teeth, do that. If it's a very complex project, then you might want to do a little bit of right to left planning, which is basically, you know, just sort of looking at your end date and then blocking out each step along the way to make sure you're going to meet your targets and, and not be subject to the planning fallacy. Each of these are very actionable in our daily lives and none of them are complicated. It's just, you have to be delivered about it. You have to actually think about it and do it and not just hope for the best. I think there's some power in getting the deadline out there and sharing it with others. Like in your example, the deadline that you knew your publisher 
knew about that deadline. You knew about the deadline. So there's something external about that. There's kind of a force. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks or whatever it was before you had the soft deadline, you you were going to give it to the manuscript to your wife and to your agent. And they, I assume, knew that and were maybe expecting it or we put expectations on ourselves to deliver for other people. And I think that's helpful. And I think as a leader, and that's something that you saw with Jensen and, and others and even on the Lily Farm, that leaders were out there using these deadlines to create this external system to motivate, inspire, align, and create urgency. And, and we do that, we can do that individually. And I think sharing it's important. Yeah, no, absolutely. The good news from some of the research is that even if you don't have external enforcement mechanisms, deadlines can be effective. You sitting in isolation, if you set a deadline, you're going to be more productive than if you didn't. But the more outside enforcement you can work into meeting your your goals, the better. Going back to magazines, I think part of the reason that they work so well is that they're hugely interdependent organizations. So each individual working at a magazine relies on so many different people from so many different parts of the organization that everyone is reminding you to get your stuff done, to be on time. For me as an editor, you know, I'm telling the writer to, to send in the article, but the art department is also tugging on my sleeve saying like, you, I, I need to see this so I can get the photographs lined up and the fact checking department wants to see it and the copy department wants to see it. And we all sort of create this interlocking mechanism that basically has the effect of keeping us you know, on schedule. You know, the other thing that you talk about in the book is setting aside time realistically to get the work done. You mentioned that when you started writing, I think you started another job around the same time and you decided that you'd come in two hours early every day and write. So you deliberately put two hours on your calendar every day and it sounds like you stuck to it where you were going to be making progress towards that goal. And I think that's a really important thing to be realistic. We have to say no to things in order to get the most important thing done. And we're not very good at saying no to things, at least I'm not. Scheduling it, putting it on my calendar is an important step for me. And I think it sounds like it worked for you too. Yeah, no, exactly. To finish the last stage of the book, I I, I did exactly that. I, I set up a two-hour block every morning that I was going to work on the book no matter what. In a way, the constraints of taking on a new day job while trying to do that made sure that I blocked off that time. I think if I was still, before that I had been reporting the book full time, I was still in that phase. I mean, maybe I would have gotten the book done at the same, uh, you know, by my deadline, but this made it crystal clear what the strictures were. Like I had these two hours to write it every day and I was going to use those two hours. And I think John McPhee, another famous writer who's very prodigious, he uses a similar technique, right? Yeah, no, exactly. He, you know, he's someone who's who's written an incredible amount over his career, but it's just very deliberate about setting aside time to write and knowing that you might only write a paragraph or two every day, but if you do that day after day after day, it's going to add up in the end. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Christopher. Where can people find out more about you and this project and, and what you're working on? Yeah, the book is available at your local bookstore and on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and and all the usual places. If you want to read more about it, probably the best place to go is to my website for the book, which is deadlineeffect.com. And that has all sorts of information, including how to order it and some links, some excerpts as well, if you want to read parts of it. Great. Well, thank you for being on The Good Life. 
Thank you, Sean. Uh, it's so fun to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.